by Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. This is the Say the Damn Score podcast with your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast. And if you have followed this podcast for some time, we've talked to a wide variety of sportscasters, some people who have made it very far in the industry, some people who are trying to climb up the ladder and fight and scratch and claw to find their way to where they eventually want to be. And right now we are talking to someone who is at the beginning of his journey still to a large extent, Nate Gatter. He is a junior at the University of Missouri, and he just won the Jim Nance Award as the nation's top collegiate sportscaster. And Nate, first of all, I just want to give you a big hearty congratulations. I've listened back to my uh, old work, and I know I would certainly not be uh, anywhere close to that leaderboard. So what a great accomplishment for you. I appreciate it. I mean, I, I think uh, really the appreciation is to John Chalesnik and to SCAA for having the award in, in the first place. I mean, all of us who are young guys who are serious about doing this, I think all work hard because, first of all, we, we love doing it. And second of all, we know that working hard now is going to give us a better chance of being able to do this for a living in the future. But certainly this just provides kind of an extra incentive to continue working hard to try to see where you can put yourself on that list and then extra motivation when you do get it. I know um, last year I, w I got my name in there for the first time uh, into the top 20 and that was that added motivation. It was perfect for me because it was, it, it said people who know things about this industry hear your work and think that you deserve recognition, but you can still get a lot better. And I think that was perfect for me. And now this is kind of a, a cool capstone to my time in college, but, at the end of the day, all it really says is you have a chance. It doesn't tell me I have anything yet, um, but it says you have a chance if you keep working like this and keep improving. So I think that we want to take it as that kind of motivation to, to keep pushing a little bit harder, but certainly thankful to SCAA to, for giving college sportcasters uh, a chance to be represented. Um, I've worked with a lot of the guys on the list in some form or fashion um, around different college summer leagues and whatnot. And there are some very, very talented people on that list. And it's it's really an honor to even be on the same list as them. And I'm so grateful and and glad that those guys have gotten their recognition um, as well for their work because it's very, very good. And, and I would like to just thank John because I think without him having the thought to do that, there would be a lot of college forecasters out there who are very, very good, um, but who wouldn't get that kind of recognition. So take us through the the process of winning that award. There's obviously some demo reels. They listen to it. But is there also interviews? Is there uh, just what all goes into going through that process and becoming an STAA All-American and the Nance Award winner? Well, no interviews or anything. One of the things I actually really like about it is that it has nothing to do with um, people who might have heard of you already or what lines you have on your resume or, or anything like that. It's just one reel. You get up to 20 minutes, um, and they want to hear whatever you do the best. Um, so, I, for example, the guy who came in second, Jake Garcia, is a, is a good friend of mine. Um, we spent some time together in the Cape League back in 2015, um, and he is, in my opinion, the best collegiate sportscaster in the country, certainly the best television anchor reporter among any college student in the country. He's now, he, has a, he just graduated from Arizona State, and he has a job uh, in Medford, Oregon. And his reel is almost all his reporting stories that he's done, clips of him anchoring, doing interviews, that kind of thing. Whereas mine was exclusively play-by-play. -play. Um, it was a, a television open that I did for a Missouri baseball game, um, a Missouri baseball television play-by-play -play segment. Uh, that play-by-play -play segments have to all be at least six minutes. I think that one was eight or nine. And then about a seven-minute clip of, of radio play-by-play -play that I did for a Lincoln University basketball game, which is a Division II school I work for nearby in, in Jefferson City. And that's how I constructed mine. I mean, it's something that I think if if I were giving advice to a freshman college sportscaster, for example, who had uh, designs on potentially g garnering some recognition from the, the program, 
I would say keep it in the back of your mind. You know, don't put a lot of pressure on yourself, but it's something good when, when you're pulling clips, you know, when you go back and listen to yourself um, and you're thinking about what kind of clips would be useful for my demo, also consider that. Look for those clips that are six to eight minutes or so that are not too long as to take up your entire 20-minute reel but meet the six-minute minimum and just kind of uh, put them away in a, in a folder or something on your computer. Keep them saved somewhere. And then go back and maybe say, okay, i got to find my best baseball, my best basketball, and then maybe my best interview that between the three of them are all under 20 minutes or something like that. Just keep it in mind year-round so that way the, the chore of actually putting it together and finding your best clips is not so mounting when we get to uh, the later part of the year and it's time to send it in. I think uh, in, in March or April it usually is. So it was definitely something that was on my mind, having constructed reels in the past and kind of trying to uh, – find the, the best way to do it. That's the most uh, stress-inducing part for me, if we're being honest, is, is am I representing myself as well as I possibly can? Um, did I pick out the right clips that really show my absolute best? Because at the end of the day, this is all they get. And so if I have better clips out there, it doesn't matter. They only get whatever I send. But uh, evidently, I made the right choices this year. What did go into the decision when you were self-evaluating yourself and coming up with uh the clips that you wanted to submit, how did you come up with uh, the pieces that you did and what stood out about them? I think the first thing is fundamentals, obviously. Um, but hopefully and, and by the time you're getting to a point where, where your work is going to get this kind of recognition, you've got the fundamentals more or less across all, any clip I could pull. I mean, the guys, I know some of the other names in the, in the top 10, top 20, even in the honorable mention, those guys have the fundamentals. You know, they're giving the time and score they're giving you the basics of who has the ball and where the ball is and, and things like that. So I think a lot of it actually has to do with things that are out of your control. What happens in the game? Um, for me, I, I used a half inning of baseball where there was a little bit of action. Not too much. The inning didn't go too long, but there were a couple of strikeouts. There was also a stolen base and then an RBI double. And I think that showed how I could give – the call in a few different situations, you know, early on in the inning, we're just doing our routine baseball call, telling you a little bit about the players, engaging the analysts, so on and so forth, the kind of things that you want to be doing. And then later in the inning, even though it was still early in the game, not a dramatic situation by any stretch, there's a little bit of action. And so you get a chance to hear me deliver a call um, with a little bit more drama, if not the late game situational drama, at least the, the drama of a big play. Um, so I think that kind of stuff is relevant. I, I had another clip that I'd considered, that was similar and I thought I did a good job, but in it, there was only one walk. Only four batters came up in the inning. Nobody got close to scoring. It wasn't very entertaining. Um, and I think that, that made the difference for me in that situation, which is kind of funny that it would be more or less out of my control. But I think a good demo clip often is out of your control. It's about getting better and getting yourself to a point where you're doing high quality work every game. And then you're prepared for when that perfect half inning or that perfect eight-minute stretch of basketball comes along and you can really kill that stretch and make sure that it's good for your demo because certain parts of this you can't manipulate. You know, the game is what it is and you have to describe it however it happens. Um, but that's why you do your preparation even for the ninth or tenth guy on the bench. That's why you do your preparation for the backup outfielder. And that's why you get your fundamentals in line so that way whenever that moment does arrive, when there's the perfect stretch that's going to be perfect for your reel, you can – do what you need to do to make sure that it, it can be on there. Being an All-American last year, when you were submitting your tape this year, did you have confidence that you could come away with this, or was that still something that you did not necessarily expect to have happen? Um, so that's kind of a complicated question. I mean, I think I'm not going to lie to you and say that it hadn't crossed my mind. Um, I, I certainly thought being in the top 20 last year uh, had been my goal to be honorable mention or top 20 as a sophomore, just to get some recognition was my goal. Um, this year, I thought I could go a lot higher, if only because of a lot of seniors who were ahead of me who were graduating. Um, my goal was to be in the top 10 for sure, and I was hoping to get into the top six to receive that, that All-America accolade. Um, to be frank, I thought there were a couple of guys who would probably be better than me just because of the respect I have for their work. Jake is one of them. Uh, Connor Onion from Ball State stands out. I, I'm a really big fan of his work. Um, we all, you know, it's a, it's a somewhat small circle, even if you haven't met him. I mean, I'm familiar with the work of a lot of, of the top guys around the country, just because it's nice to have a, a measuring stick, you know, somebody who pushes you to get better, somebody you can, you can pick things up from. 
um, to, to try to get better. So I, I wouldn't say that my goal was to win necessarily in an abstract way. It was, I mean, we always want to be the best, but I, I think it would be unfair of anybody to expect that of themselves just because of how subjective the process is when you get down to the top five or 10 guys. Um, there, there certainly would have been no shame for me in coming in behind any number of people who were on that list. There are a lot of really, really high quality broadcasters. Um, so I didn't want to put that on myself necessarily and say that if I don't win, it's a failure, but I was certainly hoping to be up toward the top of the list. It was something I had worked for. And, and obviously in a perfect world, my, my hope was to win. But I think with something like that, where there's so much competition um, and such high quality competition for an award like this, you never feel like you're going to win. Certainly it would be naive and incredibly arrogant of me to believe something like that. And I think you don't even let yourself think that way because it just, it feels too difficult. Um, and it, it feels almost disrespectful to the talent of the other people who I knew would be applying for it and would be just as deserving, if not more so, um, as compared to me. So I think yes and no is the answer. I believe that I could compete and I wanted to work hard for that, but I tried to keep myself from setting unfair goals. I wanted to be sure that I was setting difficult goals, but that they were achievable and that I was being fair to myself and considering the, the highly subjective nature of the whole process. So has it been, we're, we're recording this on Memorial Day Monday. Has it been a week, a week and a half? How long has it been off the top of my head? I can't place it right now. I believe a week and a half. I think it was May 19th, I want to say. So that would be 10 days ago. Okay, so go, part of that is always you get a call from Jim Nance at some point, and I believe you get a meeting at some point as well. Has he called you yet, and what did you say if he has? He has not yet. I did get some great calls um, from some former uh, Nance winners. Adam Cavalier, who was, if not the first, one of the early ones, I believe he was the first one in 2009. Um, and then Josh Appel, who won last year. Uh, both of them are, are really talented, and it was it was very nice of them to reach out. Got, of course, a lot of really, really nice tweets and emails and so forth, and that's it's always nice to hear from those people. At the end of the day, and I, I kind of said this at the time, but the award is great. I mean, I'm not going to pretend all of us like to get recognition and be told we're good. You know, we all like to have our ego stroked and I'm not going to lie about that. But what really gives an award value is who else is applying for it or who else is involved in the process. And then the things that you, that you hear from people, you know, because the award itself is nice, but at the end of the day, it's just a trophy or whatever. And it's going to take up, it's going to collect us over time and eventually no one will care about it. Um, but the other, the talent of the other people who are on the list and knowing what great broadcasters and what great people, many of them are, cause I know a lot of them personally, and then hearing from a lot of broadcasters, I really respect around the industry, past Nance winners or, or other professionals. Um, that's what really, really makes it worthwhile and, and gives it value. So I did appreciate those parts and I'm sure if, and when I, I get the chance to talk to Jim, that's going to be, uh, an interesting experience. Hopefully I'll be able to to make a good impression and keep my everything together. You know, obviously you're hearing it, it's going to be disorienting to hear that kind of, that voice, you know, somebody you you've listened to like that talking to you in a, in just a conversation, but I'm looking forward to hopefully getting the chance to, to meet him at some point and, and get the chance to, to pick his brain a little bit and, and see if he can, you know, if that's just another opportunity for me to get better. As, as far as I'm concerned, those are the kinds of things that, this award is really all about. If it can open doors, whether it's meeting with Jim Nance or giving more credibility when I'm talking to a decision maker in the industry or whatever, um, that's really what the award is, is about. It's not the award itself, but the other people around it and what it can do to add motivation and further uh, propulsion to your career, if you will. So at what point did you decide to go into sportscasting? When did you get the itch and why? Well, I think that the answer to that is twofold. Um, in the in an abstract sense, I think I, I decided when I was only four or five years old. Um, I was watching a, a game, and and Bob Costas was there, and he was talking on the screen, and and I asked my dad if he was getting paid to do it. Uh, he told me he was, and I said, "All right, well, that's what I'm going to do." And that was that. It wasn't a big epiphany. It was just okay. I made my decision, and I continued to tell that people that. Uh, elementary school, middle school, high school, all the way through. I never did anything. Um, in high school, we didn't have any real broadcasting. I didn't do anything to create my own. I wasn't even on the school newspaper. 
um, the summer after I graduated high school. So during, during my senior year of high school, I, I saw one of my friends turn me on to the website of this new college summer league that was in the St. Louis area, very small, only going into its second year, mostly, you know, division three NAIA junior college players. And initially I thought, Oh, cool. I don't have anything to do this summer. I'll just go and watch their games. It'll probably be free. It'll be a fun way for me to kill time. But as I was clicking around the website, I happened to notice that there was a broadcasting tab. When I clicked on it, the page was blank. So I thought, okay, maybe that means they want broadcasting, but they don't have anything yet. So I emailed the, uh, founder of the league and he happened to respond to my email. And I guess the earnest nature of my email and the fact that I said, I think in the second sentence, I will work for free, um, got him to give me an opportunity and I was terrible, but I got to do over a hundred games that summer. Um, it involved a lot of other responsibilities in the end. It was a lot of, you know, 8 a.m. to to 10 p.m. type of days going down. And I, you know, I lined fields. I called Jimmy John's to make sure the sandwiches were going to be delivered in between double headers. I filled up the Gatorade coolers. I contacted the umpires. You know, I did the PA, the music, the official scoring and the broadcast, the whole thing. But it gave me a chance to see the whole production inside and out and be on the air. And if I liked doing that, if I liked doing 12, 14 hour days when I was the clubby and the official stats guy and the broadcaster and the PA guy, if I liked doing all those jobs over such a long period of time during every day during the summer when I was 18 years old, clearly I could like doing it as a, as a job in the future. So I think that was my, my thought process. And I would say that's when I really committed to doing it for real, not just as a, this is what I tell people I'm going to do when I grow up kind of way, but as a, this is now what I'm doing and I'm working toward this. What was the biggest surprise for you as a broadcaster with no experience getting thrown headfirst into a full summer league schedule? That's a good question. I, in retrospect, I don't think I even had time to be surprised. I mean, it was, uh, I, I love the league still. I love the guys who gave me the chance. They'd be the first ones to tell you that we were barely holding it together. Um, it was, you know, think of a typical startup company that has basically no money and is just trying to figure out how to get to the next day and then the next week and then get through the season still intact. Um, so I, I didn't really have time to step back and think about that kind of thing. I think it was how few resources there are at the low levels. In some ways, that was a that was a sneak peek into what minor league baseball is like. I think a lot of people are surprised at how little money and how few resources there are in minor league baseball for broadcasters, for players, for anybody. Um, so I think you get that wake up call really early, which is that it's not a life of glitz and glamor for 99% of us. Um, but you also find out that it can be very rewarding. Um, I think a lot of my lessons didn't come until future summers when I was able to be more of an, an exclusive broadcaster, if you will. Um, because I was, you know, that summer I wasn't getting feedback. I wasn't getting anything for all I know. We never had a listener the entire year. Um, I was just trying to get to the next day and do whatever I had to do to make myself as indispensable as possible to the league and make sure that they wouldn't get rid of me. Um, but in future summers, I think it's when I started to really learn lessons about play by play and the challenges of it and, and so forth. So uh, being around a team like that, where, the budget is low. I'm sure the facilities and equipment were less than stellar. And you know what? Sometimes those things aren't the most uh, well-oiled machines. Give us a couple fun stories from that summer of just unusual things that happened. Well, I managed a game in the league. I think that was the most unusual thing that happened. Toward the end of the summer, we had a, we had a, one of the teams in the league is uh, – the manager had a conflict of some kind. I don't remember. The manager was uh, either a, I think a, a guy who had just graduated. He had a, a former college baseball player who had just graduated that May and was managing over the summer, trying to get into college coaching. And he had a conflict of some kind and he had to miss the game. And so I grabbed the spare uniform and I went down there and I managed the game for the travelers. And we won six to two over the lookouts. And I retired with a one and managerial record. And that, I can say it's something I will almost certainly never do again. But I, I did, if there's something that goes into making a baseball league happen, I pretty much did it that summer, including 
stepping up as, as interim manager for one game. So when you were the interim manager, did you actually make any decisions while you were there, or did you basically just uh, sit there and uh, maybe sub some people in and out and make some pitching changes, or did you was it a legitimate uh, kind of managing experience? Well, I wrote out the lineup. Um, I, I, I made the lineup decisions, and I made the pitching change decisions, and then we had kind of a loose steel sign. It was really that I would just kind of take my hand and flick it, um, but, I, but I did that too. So I, I would call it as – as much of a managerial experience as you can have in one game. At the end of the day, baseball managing is, is very hands-off um, in the day-to-day. You know, most of what baseball managing is at the, at the higher levels happens much more in broad strokes, uh, kind of big-picture type of way. But in the sense, as much as you can be hands-on managing an individual baseball game, I, I think I was, more or less. It was uh, definitely, in my mind, it was legitimate. Whether or not uh, the, the spectators or the opposing team or my own players, for that matter, felt that way, would be another thing but it was uh in my own mind it was it was completely legitimate and i certainly count the win as legitimate did any of the pitchers try to keep the ball when you tried to take them out no they didn't but i i definitely had to be careful to not try to be an authoritarian certainly i i was i was living in fear of a coup the entire game no question about that so after you made the decision to go to the university of missouri and get into sports casting what was the process like to get reps in the uh, Mizzou sportscasting system? Is it something where if you just sign up, they put you on? Do you have to earn your stripes and then eventually you are allowed to go on? How does that work? I know a lot of different places work in a lot of different ways. Right. That, no, that's a really good question. Um, I, so at Mizzou, the student radio station is university-owned, which means it more or less operates as a club and has to be equal opportunity. So we basically... Not completely, but it's more or less sign up. I mean, freshmen can't sign up to do football games, but if you want to do something, they have to find something for you. Uh, the first game I ever did for them was Mizzou women's soccer winning 4-3 to three in overtime over Montana. It was the September of my freshman year. Um, and I, I remember it well. I was in completely over my head. Um, but I enjoyed it, and so I came back for for one more and and so on and so forth. So I think early on I liked that policy because it gave me a chance to get on air just a little bit and and keep it going. I I got to do um, a men's basketball game my freshman year, which was cool, a couple of baseball games. But I I learned quickly that you weren't going to get big numbers of reps. Even as an upperclassman, junior or senior, even if if I was as focused on the student radio station as I could possibly be, my reps would still be limited. Maybe one football game, a couple of men's basketball games, a couple of women's games, a volleyball game here or there, a softball game, a baseball game, what have you, 15 games a year at the most, I would think would be the ceiling, maybe 20, which is, as we all know, just not enough to, to get better in a meaningful way. If you're doing 20 games a year, you might be having fun, but you're not going to improve all that much. Um, so for me, it very quickly became about how can I get reps outside of this? Um, so after my freshman year, I went to the Cape League, uh, one of the, the most prestigious summer college leagues in the country for players. Now, for broadcasters, I think it, it carries some of the same prestige. It's certainly a little bit primitive. The Cape League is 10 teams on Cape Cod, all within 60 miles or so of each other. There are no road trips, no overnight stays. They play at middle school and high school field. They have webcasts that are often dropping because the Wi-Fi is virtually non-existent. All, the whole nine yards. The picture 1980, and that's pretty much how, how the Cape League plays. And it has a, a very distinct romance to it, and I could not recommend it more strongly. It's an incredible experience. If you're a baseball fan, go do it. Um, broadcasters, it's definitely a different experience, but I absolutely loved it. And that was where I started to get the, get the reps of doing baseball every day in a, in a way where I was really focused on the broadcast. Because then I went to – these are organizations that, as, as much as they're nonprofits and not making a lot of money – they're well run and they've been well run for years and years and years. So we have a lot of interns to do things. We have Brown's crew. We have all those things. So I'm focused on the broadcast. And that gave me a chance to get a feel for what it's really like to call baseball every day, not to run a baseball league, not to try to make ends meet, but to call baseball day in and day out. I did 50 games that summer. And that was when I started to feel like I was getting better. I was sending my work out to people and getting the kinds of reviews that you want as a young guy. They, they have some positivity in it. They have encouragement. And then they have a, a number of specific critiques where you can get better uh, little by little. I came back that fall, my sophomore year, and I was thinking, okay, I'm not getting enough 
reps at the student station. I like it a lot. I like the people. It's a good opportunity. I continue doing games there. I've continued to do them my entire college career, but there aren't enough games. And so at that point, I started to try to reach out and, and find these other universities and other teams and, and other ways to do as many games as I could and improve in more meaningful ways more quickly. And I think that was what really flipped the switch for me. That was when I started to get a lot better quickly. And that was what really solidified that itch that I had and confirmed to me that this was something I wanted to do long term. So this may be jumping to conclusions here, but I'm judging by this conversation, it seems like your passion really seems to be in baseball broadcasting, which is interesting to me because your first broadcast at Mizzou, you said, was a soccer game. Doing soccer and volleyball or lacrosse or all of the maybe non-revenue sports, so to speak, it seems like a lot of the opportunities that I'm seeing uh, in the market now include a lot of those as well as basketball or baseball or football. How lucky do you consider yourself to be to maybe be forced to get the reps in those sports at a young age when you can figure those out and kind of make your mistakes? Certainly, I think fortunate. Um, I would encourage young broadcasters to give every sport a chance. Um, for me, this spring, I had the opportunity to do TV play-by-play for SEC Network Plus broadcast, primarily of Mizzou baseball, which is something I was very enthusiastic about. Baseball, as you, as you uh, astutely picked up, is, is definitely my number one passion. Not that I have anything against other sports. I enjoy doing those as well. I think doing baseball year-round would get boring, but it, it certainly has always been my first love. Um, but that also came with the opportunity to do Missouri softball games, do uh, some of their SEC Network Plus TV broadcasts. And as much as I had never followed softball, if we're being frank, but never really cared for, thought like it very much and had never certainly never done a softball game before. I was not going to say no to those opportunities because you'd have to be a fool to say no to, to an opportunity like that at, at 20 years old. So I took them and I started following softball a bit that spring so that I would be literate. Um, of course, SEC softball is terrific. It's the best sport the SEC has. And that's saying something. Um, and I absolutely loved it. Now, is, would I rather broadcast softball than baseball? No. But I really, really enjoyed the sport. Same thing with lacrosse. I've done some lacrosse, not at Mizzou, because we don't have a, a varsity lacrosse team. But I've done some for other local colleges, and I've really enjoyed that. I've done soccer. I've liked that a lot. I'm going to have the chance to do some, some Mizzou women's soccer games on television in the fall. I'm looking forward to that. Um, I, I really enjoy our women's basketball team at Mizzou. We have an outstanding team. They're very fun to watch. Um, so don't write, I would encourage no sportscaster, especially a young one to write off a sport that's not football, basketball, or baseball, because you'll find a lot of enjoyment in them. And I think they make you better. I mean, if I can do softball with the speed of softball in a conversational way, I can easily do baseball in a conversational way. A lot of those things translate with women's basketball. If you're learning, it's very similar to men's, just a little bit slower pace generally. So if you're still starting out, and you feel like Division One men's basketball is moving a little fast for you, women's basketball could be perfect because they do almost all the same things. It's just slightly slower pace. It's not quite as much transition game usually. So things like that. Um, soccer, for example, if you're doing soccer on the radio, you talk about a difficult sport to pinpoint the ball and describe to people what exactly is happening, where the ball is. If you can do it in soccer, you can do it in any sport. So I think you can take things from all those sports, even if you end up not enjoying doing them very much, which I think most sportscasters will be surprised. If you're a sports fan, I think you'll be surprised by how much you enjoy doing almost any sport, even if you don't know much about it or think that you don't like it very much before you start doing it. But even if you end up not liking it, there are still things that you can take away from it that make you a better broadcaster in the sports you do like. Um, so I would, I would encourage broadcasters to say yes as, as much as possible to all manner of different sports, different mediums, and if nothing else, develop as many skills as possible that you can then apply wherever you're passionate. So I want to backtrack a little bit to where you were talking about joining the Cape Cod League. Uh, before we went on air, you told me you were originally from St. Louis, Missouri. You didn't go too far away to go to Columbia for college. How did you end up with a connection in the Cape Cod League up in the Northeast? Well, I've always been a baseball junkie. Uh, when I was in high school, my dad gave me this book called uh, The Last Best League. And it's by Jim Collins. He's a... Uh, 
uh, an author who has been passionate about the Cape League. It was one of his dreams when he went and played college baseball that he wanted to play there. He never made it, but he wrote this great book about it. I would strongly recommend it to anybody. And the Cape League is kind of this this heaven for baseball purists and baseball romantics. Um, it's where the best players all go. It's 10 teams made up of the absolute best amateur baseball player, American amateur baseball players in the world. And they play against each other for a summer. It's on Cape Cod, one of the greatest summer destinations in the entire country. And they play on these little fields. A lot of them have bleachers or don't have seats at all. People are set up on blankets and in lawn chairs. And it's an atmosphere that I've never experienced before. And I'm sure we'll never experience again. I can work in the biggest stadiums known to mankind. And I will always say there's something about Eldridge Park in Orleans, Massachusetts, that these stadiums cannot match because it has this incredible hominess to it. It has this Norman Rockwell America nature to it. And yet you look out on the field and you're seeing the best players in the country. Just the team I work for, the Orleans Firebirds, just that one, not even taking into account the other nine teams in the league. We had 15 players drafted in the first 10 rounds of the 2015 Major League Draft, or the 2016 Major League Draft, I should say. That is unbelievable talent that no other summer league in the country can match. So I think that was what drew me to it. Um, it, it was a, a goal of mine from the beginning when I started college that at some, some summer in college, I want to work in the Cape League. So my freshman year, I, I got together in retrospect, what was a truly terrible tape. It was about three minutes long, and I sent it. And a man named Stu Murray, who I'm still good friends with, uh, who's on the board of directors for the, uh, for the Firebirds, heard something. I have never asked him specifically what it was, but for some reason he liked my tape, and he hired me. And to be honest, I still don't think I've ever gotten a phone call that mattered as much to me, because that was my first big goal. It was like, if I, this was the big leagues to me at the early age, right? This was the college version of the big leagues, and I did it. So now it makes you think, maybe I can do the next thing. Maybe I can get to the next goal and to the next one. And if I keep kicking off goals one by one by one, who knows where you can end up 10 or 15 goals down the line. Um, so I think that was a huge encouragement for me and certainly the best summer of my entire life. It's, uh, it's quite the experience. I would encourage any college sports gaster to apply out there. And I would encourage absolutely any sports fan, certainly any baseball fan to, to go experience it because it is unlike anything else I've seen. And I think for a 21-year-old, I think I've seen much more baseball than the average person. And I've, I've never seen anything quite like that. So that's – speaking that you were 21, I was actually just about to ask how old you are because I can look back to my college days where you know, I was getting sports casting reps but certainly was not as focused as you were as, uh, at building and improving. You know, I was more concerned about – bar clothes and which place to be and where the best pizza was and all those things. Have you had to sacrifice maybe some of what you believe or what the general public believes to be the college experience in order to achieve what you've achieved? In some ways, yeah. Um, I'm actually going to turn 21 in a couple of days, so I, I jumped the gun a little bit on that. I don't know when you're planning to put it out. I figured I would go with You'll be 21 by the time it gets out. Yes, yes. Um, I, I think I have a little bit, um, but not in a way that I think it makes my quality of life worse. I mean, I have, this is what I've been passionate about. You know, I don't prep on a Friday night for a Saturday college football game because, because I feel like I have to, or because, or in spite of the fact that I would much, much rather be doing something else. I do it because I like it. And I think that inspires me further because even if there's something else I might rather be doing by a little bit at that particular moment, if I'd rather be out, you know, going out to eat or going to a movie or doing whatever else we want to do. I know that I like doing this. And if I do it now, it gives me a chance to keep doing what I like for my entire life. And that's kind of the motivation is how cool would it be if at age 30, 40, 50, I still can do what I like. I still don't have to say, man, I got to stop thinking about this game because I got to go to work. If instead I could say, I can keep thinking about this game all day because I'm doing it tonight. And so this is my job. And, and I think that has always far surpassed that, that kind of goal and that vision 
and the thought that it might be possible has always far surpassed any sacrifice I might have to make in the short term. Um, but certainly it has influenced my college experience in some ways. It's been a little bit different, but I think you always prioritize things. Um, there have certainly been times in my life where in my, in my early part of my career where I have prioritized prepping for a game that I felt like was particularly important over prepping even for an exam. And I'm not recommending that. My point is that we all make choices. Um, so I think it, it just depends on your priorities. Absolutely. I've made some sacrifices socially, some sacrifices academically at times. Um, you know, when, when our Stan Sylvie, our associate athletics director at Mizzou, who's in charge of the Mizzou network broadcast, the SEC network plus stuff, emailed me to say, Hey, can you do these softball games? I said, yes. I didn't check what time it was, what the dates were. As it turned out, I had to do a softball doubleheader that required me to miss my classes on one Tuesday. That's how it goes. To me, that's worth it because I'm not going to say no to him because not only am I going to miss out on those two games, but then the next time he might email somebody else. He might offer them the chance to take my spot. So it, it, for me, it just comes down to knowing what are my priorities and why are they my priorities. And if you can answer those two questions, I don't think you have, I don't think you feel like you are missing out. Even if you are making sacrifices, I don't think they feel like chores at that point. So this summer, you are the broadcaster for the Gateway Grizzlies at the Frontier League. Uh, off the top of my head, I believe they are unaffiliated, uh, independent ball. That's obviously a great opportunity for somebody as young as you at this point. It's good for someone my age, to be frank. So how did you end up with that job? Was it through a connection? Was it through a blind application again, like it was with the Cape Cod? How did that come about? So it was a little bit of both. Initially, I was applying for the broadcast assistant job there as the number two guy, where typically they've taken a college student to pair with their director of broadcasting and media relations. The last guy they had there was named Sam Levitt. Um, he's in his mid-20s, I think, now. And he had been with the Firebirds in the Cape League three and two seasons, 2012 and 2013, before I was there. Um, so I knew him a little bit. I had met him in past seasons. I had gone in and sat in the booth with him just because he was a, an established guy working in the minor leagues, although unaffiliated, as you, as you said correctly, um, and somebody I had a connection with, and now he was here in my hometown. So, of course, I would, I would go and want to meet him. And I'd also gotten to know Adam Young, who was their broadcaster before. He's now um, with New Mexico State University. Uh, I, I had met him and, and used him to give me feedback on my tape. He'd been one of the people and still is one of the people I reach out to um, for advice and for feedback to try to improve my call. But I, I had originally applied for that because I felt like, you know what, I've done most of what there is to do in summer college ball at this point. I've done three years. I did the Cape League, which is kind of the most notable league. Then I went to the Northwood League in 2016 last summer, which is kind of the most pro simulation. They play 72 games. They do the road trips on the bus. They do the whole nine yards. So I felt like, okay, I've pretty much exhausted what there is there. So now would be the time for me to get some professional experience before I graduate. So that way I can say to a minor league team, I've been in pro ball. I know what it takes. And Sam is a good broadcaster. He would be a, a good guy to learn from. He has a lot of things that I could pick up over the course of a season. So it was one of the options. It wasn't necessarily where I was pointing all of my attention. I was considering some other things. And then Sam took a job with the Corpus Christi Hooks, the Houston Astros AA affiliate. And all of a sudden they were looking for a number one guy. I didn't really think anything of it. If anything, at the time, it made me think I'm not interested in the number two job anymore at all because I'm not going to take it if I don't know who the number one guy is. Because a big reason I wanted it, even though it would be a cut in my innings and I wouldn't be going on the road and so forth, was because I'd be able to learn from somebody I respected a lot in the industry. And now I didn't know who that number one guy was going to be. But then the night before my interview with the Grizzlies, which I thought was for the number two position, Adam Young called me and he said, I've been talking to the GM. I've been giving them some advice on who I think they could go for. And they brought your name up because I, they had my name and my resume and tape and so forth from the number two position. And he recommended that they give me a chance. He thought he, that I could do it. And so then they interviewed me with the number one job in mind. And in the end I, I got it. Um, so that's why I say kind of a little bit of both because they already had my application and they already liked it. But then Adam was the one who pushed them to interview me and it went from there. So I, I don't think it was necessarily that Adam got me the job. But certainly if he had not pushed them and told them that he thought I was capable and that they wouldn't be insane to hire a 20-year-old, that I would not have been in contention and even considered at all. So I, I owe him a lot of debt. 
for that, um, I think it's, it's kind of shows you the relationship, right? We always talk about who, you know, and we talk about what, you know, and which one is more important. Um, and the answer is, as it almost always is some of both, um, that I probably wouldn't have gotten the consideration with, without Adam. I probably wouldn't have gotten the consideration without being a local guy because that's something they liked a lot. But then my tape and my interview and everything also had to be where it needed to be. That was just what got me into consideration. So I think I'm, I'm very thankful to Adam. I'm thankful to the Grizzlies for that, for taking that chance, because I think they took a big one. Certainly um, not a lot of organizations would have done that. And I was thankful for it at the time. I certainly am now. And, and I hope that I'm able to make it pay off for them down the line. So with that being said, I want to follow up on that. You talked about the the importance of building relationships and networking and getting to know lots of different people. What have you done uh, on that side of things to make sure that you're getting to know people despite, uh, I mean, obviously traveling helps a little bit, but um, at that college age where you don't maybe have time or money to go to conferences and do things, how have you been able to do that? Sure. I think that's a good question. For me early on, it was emailing people um, and, and asking if they'd be willing to listen to something of mine and kind of going from there. Uh, it was all about me trying to get feedback and get better. Um, a lot of the ways I got those emails was just through sending out like LinkedIn requests, say, or trying to find somebody's email online unsolicited and then sending the cold call equivalent of emails. I don't know if people say cold emails, but that's basically what they were. Um, and I didn't get a ton of responses. I mean, I would say maybe 50-50, 70% response rate at most. Um, but the people who did often provided very worthwhile feedback. And so if you, if you send out a whole bunch of emails, even if you only get responses from 50% of them, and even if only 50% of those are worthwhile, that's still 25% of your pool that you didn't have before. Um, and those are people who then you can try to cultivate relationships with. I think the hardest part is taking those relationships beyond a kind of transactional level where it's almost impersonal. It's just, they listen to your tape. They say what you think they think you say, thank you. Right. That's not really a relationship. Um, so it, it comes from just trying to get to know the person a little bit as much as you can. Certainly if there ever arises a rare situation where you can do something as a younger guy for this person, offer it, do whatever you can um, and then meet when you can. So that's paying attention to, to their schedules and when they're going to be around. Um, so I've met with big league broadcasters when they're in St. Louis to play the Cardinals or in Kansas city to play the Royals or network people who come to Columbia to do a Mizzou game or to St. Louis or wherever, um, or other college broadcasters who play, whose teams play against Mizzou. And I can see them there. Um, just pay attention to those things and try to find whatever option you can, but you have to be the one to look up their schedule. If it's a team, for example, Brian Barnhart, who I know you had on this podcast not long ago, the, the voice of Illinois, um, I had talked to him a little bit, and I say, you know what? Illinois, of course, plays Mizzou every year in basketball. I'm going to be there doing the Bragging Rights game this past December for the student radio station. So I said, hey, you know, could we maybe meet up and just chat for 10 or 15 minutes before the game? And he said, sure. And it's easy because we're both there. Now, it doesn't always work out. It's not a big deal. Um, but, you know, if you're the one who goes out of your way and you think – Here's a situation, you know, a National League broadcaster. Okay, he's probably going to come to St. Louis at some point. An American League broadcaster, he's probably going to come to Kansas City at some point. Can I figure out a way to get there and just see? Maybe they can take, maybe they can take you in. Maybe they can meet with you. Maybe you can shadow them for a game. Maybe none of it works out. But make it easy on them. Already have figured out the dates. Know when you can come and say, hey, could I do this? You know, don't ask them to do anything. Don't ask them to meet you anywhere. Just say, you know, I'll come to the ballpark. Could this work? Would you be able to you know, leave a pass for me or whatever? And I think a, a lot of them are very receptive to that kind of thing. They, they really enjoy doing it, either out of the goodness of their hearts um, or I guess an extension of that is, is giving back, right? Because a lot of those guys had people do that for them. I would wager that there is not a single major league broadcaster or power five broadcaster or network broadcaster who didn't have quite a few established professional broadcasters who went out of their way to do something for them, getting nothing in return. So they're paying that forward. Um, and obviously already, even with what I've gotten in my career so far, and I'm sure I will be indebted much more if and when I ever get further along, I would be more than happy to pay that forward to anybody younger than me, which admittedly very few people 
at this point, but down the, I can already understand the instinct for them to do that. So I think as long as you make it easy on people and you're respectful of their time and their energy um, and their expertise and you don't inundate them, but you're polite about it, I think almost all of these guys are willing to go above and beyond to do whatever they can to make you better and help you succeed. Who are some of your mentors and what have they done to help you to you know, advance to the level that you're at where you're starting to win awards and get jobs before you've even graduated college? Who are some of the people who have helped you along the way since you were just talking about it? Sure. I think this is another one of those questions that kind of is answered in a few parts um, because there are kind of different levels of mentors. I would say anybody who's responded to my email at all and given me any feedback at all on my call is somebody who's a mentor in some way or another, somebody who's helped make me better. And that is hundreds of people. Um, then there's the level of professional broadcasters who I know and have developed a relationship with, but we're, you know, we're not close. We spend only so much time around each other, which is the nature of it. You know, I see them maybe once a year or maybe a few times. Maybe I've just spoken on the phone a few times with them. Um, that category would include people like Adam Young, who I mentioned before, uh, Joe Block with the Pittsburgh Pirates, who's been very, very good to me, uh, Ken Korak with the Oakland A's, Adam Amin of ESPN. Um, who else comes to mind? There, there are certainly some many, many others. Um, uh, Mark Neely, also with ESPN, he's been been really gracious with his time. That's kind of that that intermediate level. Uh, Mark Zumoff, obviously, I can't leave him out. Chuck Swirsky with the Bulls, Zumoff with Seventy Sixers, um, and, and we're, we don't have. You know, I wouldn't describe us as close friends. Certainly, you know, we, we haven't spent a lot of time together. We've never worked together. None of that. But we've I've gotten to know them. I've I've met them all at one point or another. They've provided a lot of feedback. We've spoken a lot about the industry, things like that. And then there's the the primary level, which is the people who maybe aren't those big name sportscasters who have a lot of credibility and whatnot, but they're people who have taken chances on you and mentored you professionally. So that includes people at the Lewis and Clark Baseball League, who I worked for the first year, Stu Murray with the Firebirds, as I mentioned, um, somebody like Steve Gomrick, who's the general manager of the Grizzlies right now, or Alex Wilson, who's our assistant general manager, guys who have taken chances on me and have helped me along whether it's as simple as giving me a job or giving me more feedback or just teaching me how to be a professional managers I've worked for Kelly Nicholson uh, with the Firebirds been there for a long time. He's an outstanding manager, very well respected in baseball. And he taught me some, some difficult lessons, um, some things that I needed to hear as a 19 year old who thought I was pretty good being in, in the Cape league after I, my freshman year, I thought I was hot stuff. And he taught told me some things that I needed to hear at times, but I'm better for it. Um, so I think all those people, they might not be big name broadcasters, but they're also mentors in their own way. So you graduate in this coming December. So you have one semester of schools left, of school left, not plural. But uh, what are your goals uh, for after graduation, both in the short and long term? Well, I think long term at this stage of, of my career, it would be naive of me to say anything other than, I'd like to be able to do this for a decent living full time. Um, obviously, you know, we can go astronomical and say, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be a big league broadcaster, so on and so forth. Wouldn't we all? Um, but I, th I think that's where I am right now. If I get to that point, then we can start thinking about going further. Certainly at the, at the long, long-term level, if everything went perfectly, I would love to get to that, that top level where it's, whether it's the major leagues, the NBA, a network, a, a big university, what have you, the way we all, we, we all think, um, those kind of dream jobs. But I'm more concerned with short-term goals. I always have been um, because I, I'm not going to go from where I am now to being you know, the voice of the Cardinals or one of the big-name guys on ESPN. There are a ton of steps between here and there, and I have very little way of knowing what they're going to be. They're different for almost every broadcaster. So it would be foolish of me not only to spend too much time thinking about that, but to try to chart a path all the way to there, because there's no way to know what my path is going to look like. Uh, all kinds of things influence that that are out of my control. So I think for me, it, it's always been about doing as well as you can in the job you're in, and then never thinking more than one job ahead. Um, so the, one of the reasons I wanted to graduate in December was to be ab available for that entire affiliated baseball season, because that season starts in April. A lot of the jobs start in March or even February. Um, so certainly that's, something that is a short-term goal of mine. Uh, the Grizzlies are outstanding, and I would not be disappointed by in, in any way, by any stretch, to be here for another year. 
but definitely that's something that I will explore. Um, my goal coming into this year was to set my, the reason I wanted to get into pro ball was to set myself up with my experience to add that level of professionalism and hopefully be a contender for a number one job with a full season affiliated team next year. Um, that was one of the big reasons for graduating in, in December, but even now I'm focusing, you know, we're only 15 games into my season of 96 games this summer. Um, so I'm not thinking too much ahead of how much better can I make my baseball call this year. So that way, when those things come up in the winter, I'll be ready. I'd like to improve my football call a lot this fall. I do football games for Lincoln University, as I mentioned, the Division II school in, in Jefferson City, Missouri, which is about 20 or 25 minutes from Columbia. And I've only done one full season of football last year. I'm going to get the chance to do 10 or 11 games this year with Lincoln, and I'd like to improve that a lot. I'd like to take advantage of this chance to do soccer on television because those kinds of lesser sports, as we talked about, the ones that aren't considered the main three, baseball, football, basketball, are in some ways a good way to to break in. If and when there is an opportunity at the network level, say, a lot of those guys start out doing a lot of different sports. Maybe they get to do some low-level college football, but somebody like Adam Amin, for example, or Joe Davis, those guys who broke in really young, they're asked to do high school football or they're asked to do wrestling or they're asked to do volleyball or softball or women's basketball or whatever. So I, I want to get as much experience as I can doing all those sports lacrosse as well. One that I like to do. So I think I'm always focused on the short term because there's very little at this point that I can do about the long term. I think there's very little any of us can do about the long term. I can't possibly imagine where my life or my career will be in 10 years, not even really in five years. I can hope for things, but that's not really a goal. That's just a dream. So I'd rather work in, in goals short term and, and just try to set myself up right now to be in the best possible position in three or six months when I'm applying for jobs for next year. So with the recent ESPN cuts and the rapid change in technology and the way that games are broadcast where more of them are online instead of on terrestrial radio or TV, what... Are you concerned at all about the future of the industry that you're going into at the age that you're at? Not all that much, I have to say. Maybe that's naive of me. Um, If I were a true journalist, definitely I I think I would be concerned. Um, I think media members, print print reporters or digital reporters have reason to be concerned. Um, But frankly, I don't think play-by-play broadcasters have that much reason to be all that worried um, because live games, I think will survive whether that means that they're streaming over Twitter or Facebook instead of television, maybe, but at the end of the day, I don't really care where it's going. I'm just calling the game. You can put it wherever you want. I'm just going to do the game. Um, live games on radio, whether they're audio streams or over terrestrial radio, I don't think those are really going anywhere because people who are driving need something to listen to. Um, or need a way to consume that game. Um, So I'm not all that concerned about play-by-play because I I don't think broadcasts of sporting events are going anywhere that the medium might change. But thankfully for me, that's, that's not necessarily my, my issue in the, in the long term. You know, I'm not out there working for ESPN trying to sell their game packages or trying to get better deals and raise ad revenue or any of that. Um, You know, my job is to call the game and, I, I don't think that broad play-by-play guys are going to cease to exist. Um, I, the broadcast might change. The nature of them, how they're presented might change as we get more graphics packages to reflect more of these advanced stats. Um, the nature of what we're doing might change, but I think there are always going to be guys there helping fans consume the game. And, and I think re- no matter how, how that looks or, or where it's coming from, that there will be a market for that regardless. Maybe, maybe that's a naive answer but i would say in media if there's one group that appears safe right now it's people who work on the game broadcast itself um but even beyond that the message from espn during all these layoffs was they wanted to save the people who are versatile they're keeping the people who are versatile and that's where again somebody like adam amin's name comes up i think he's probably one of the two or three best broadcasters in the entire country under the age of 30 um joe davis would be one of the other ones I think those are probably the top two. I'd have to sit down and really think about it, but those are the the two who immediately come to mind. And it's all about versatility. 
Adam does college football on TV, NFL on the radio, college basketball on TV and radio. Now he does the NBA on TV and radio. He does Major League Baseball on TV and radio. He does college softball on TV. He has done wrestling on TV in the past, so on and so forth. He's done all of those things. So I think if you're doing play-by-play and you can do a lot of different sports in a lot of different mediums, there will be a market for that long-term, no matter what. I don't know what it'll look like. I don't know who will be paying you. I don't know what the platform will be, but I think there's going to be a job for you. What have you done to develop other skills that go along with a lot of especially kind of entry-level and mid-level jobs? You alluded to this a little bit, but like uh, media relations, um, sales, have you ever worked on being a music DJ? Uh, What have you done as far as to kind of get those peripheral skills that a lot of times come with play-by-play jobs up to par? Sure. For me, it's, it's always been about media relations primarily because that's where I've kind of seen my path is, is minor leagues and, and those types of things. Um, obviously, the, the sales stuff comes in there as well. Music DJ could come in if you were working for a radio station or something like that. Um, uh, the message on media relations, the primary message there is one that I hear from a lot of older broadcasters in television in radio, sports, or news, which is that your number one priority is knowing how to write. That if you don't know how to write, it doesn't matter what else you can do. Um, And I I think I've heard it said, and I think this is fair, that one of the things that sets apart the guys who do the great opens, like the Keith Jacksons and the Brent Musburgers of the world, as much as they have these amazing voices, of course, they're also very, very good writers who know how to set the stage and they can build up the event. Uh, so I think it starts with writing. Uh, I spent a, a good amount of time with the college newspaper, the man eater here uh, at Mizzou. I have obviously done a lot of media relations work in, in the baseball stuff that I've already done. You know, that means doing the social media. It means handling the roster changes, writing game notes every day, writing the game recap every night, those types of things. Um, and my advice would be just to do it. You know, you, there, are, there are jobs out there you can get the, the entry-level jobs, like working in the Northwoods League or working in the Cape Cod League, where you won't have to have a ton of experience with that yet. If you can prove you can write, they'll give you a chance to do it for them, even if you've never done it in a media relations context. And you can learn how to do it. And, and it all comes from knowing how to write in the first place. Be a good writer. Be uh, entertaining, but learn the fundamentals. I think the fundamentals part often gets left out. That comes from writing a lot and knowing what the fundamentals are. Write an active voice. No AP style. That one is huge. When you're writing press releases, they need to all be consistent. Stuff like that. Um, Just the the little things. I think older people, whether they're fans, whether they're employers or other broadcasters, are always looking for younger broadcasters to make mistakes of negligence, right? To rush through something, to not take it seriously enough, um, to just be blasé about the lesser parts of their work, to be kind of guys who expect to be to enjoy the glamour of the that there is in play by play to do all the on air stuff and really enjoy that but neglect the other parts of their job because they're not as glamorous they're looking for young people to be divas right they expect the younger generation to have want to have things handed to them or whatever and so you have to be diligent because you have to prove to them every single day that that's not you and the bottom line is as unfair as it might be if you have a week's worth of really good press releases and then you make stupid mistakes at the end of the week in one of them that aren't consistent with the other ones and you mess up your style or you don't write it well, or you, you get somebody's name wrong. That's what they're going to remember. You can do something right the whole time, but if you make a mistake that looks like you were negligent, that's what they're going to remember. So I, I think it comes down to understanding how much there is in this job that isn't related to broadcasting and being willing to take the time and spend the effort that it takes to be good at those parts, being diligent about it, and setting to setting your mind to it that no one is going to take this away from me for something like that. If you have to put it, put those people as the adversary in your mind, then do it. I've had to do that at times. I'm going to prove to my boss that he's wrong about me, that I can handle this part and I'm going to push through it. And I might not love doing it. I don't love always writing the game recap every night. I don't always love the mundane parts of doing the game notes, but that's part of it. And you have to do it if you want to get to that point. You know, all of us have that dream of getting toward the top where you don't have to do that stuff anymore. Your job is just to do the game. Well, this is what it takes to get there. So every time I'm doing that, I'm motivating myself with, this is how I'm going to prove my current boss wrong. 
that he's not going to find any mistakes. He can comb through it, and he's not going to find any mistakes. This is how I'm going to prove to my next boss on my application that I have what it takes to work for him, and this is how I'm eventually going to get to the level where I don't have to do this anymore, and I get to be the kind of guy who, who, has, who really has the most fun possible, which is the guys who get to the top level and get to just call the game. So if you have a night off and on your night off some schmuck from South Dakota isn't trying to call you and ask you a bunch of questions, what broadcaster <laughs> are you listening to or what broadcasters do you enjoy just listening to or watching uh, both on a national basis and maybe a local regional basis from the Missouri, Columbia, St. Louis area? That's a good question. I like it. I would say I'm a big MLB TV guy. Um, I, I had the video package. I would encourage every young sportscaster to have the radio, the MLB app with the radio broadcast. I think it's only like 20 or $30 for the whole season. You get all the radio broadcasts. I also like to have the TV package too. It's a little more expensive, but I like to be able to sync up the radio broadcast so that I can see what they're seeing and then also hear how they're describing it. Um, I'm my, my main guys are Eric Nadell, who's the, the Rangers radio voice. I think he probably has the best descriptors of anybody in baseball doing it right now. And one of the great things about that is that you can learn things from him without ripping from his style, because the stuff that you're listening for is not really his personality. It's, it's what he thinks to describe and the, the types of words and phrases he uses to describe things. Um, John Miller I think obviously we all we all know how good John Miller is, but specifically the his vocal tendencies, um, the way he uses his voice to express the moment, how conversational and kind of I don't want to say soft in the sense of a a low volume, but soft in in feathery. His voice he often tilts his voice up a little bit at the end to just kind of let off loosely. There's no hard break to his sentence, right? It's like when you stop very slowly and you almost don't notice when you come to a stop because it was so slow. You don't realize until you look outside and realize you're not, and you see you're not moving. That's the kind of way he ends his sentences. It just, he, he lets it float away. Um, those kind of specific things that aren't necessarily reflective of anyone's personality, because you don't want to start ripping off of other people or losing your own personality. But I think you can take little, uh, vocal things that people do or little descriptors and kind of use those to mold, uh, the fundamentals of your broadcast and then fit your personality in around that. So those two uh, come to my mind with baseball. Some others who I've who I've listened to at various times, Joe Block, who I mentioned earlier. I think he's very, very conversational, which is something that I worked on a lot. It's hard for a lot of young broadcasters, including myself. Uh, Pat Hughes with the Cubs. Then in basketball, um, I really this is this is one you're talking about local guys. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Bob Ramsey, who is the the voice of the St. Louis University Billikens men's basketball team. Um, I just, I love his energy. I love his descriptions. He's a little bit of a Homer, which I loved when I was in high school and I'm a diehard fans of the fan of the Rick Majerus Billikens. Um, and and I feel like he gave me a lot of passion for it. I could hear his passion and that, that drove me not only to love basketball more at the time, but to, to want to do this. There, there are so many guys. I think that's the real answer. I feel like I'm going on and on on this, this question. Thank God this is a podcast, but I, uh, I think there are so many guys out there you can find if, if you want to listen. You know, the NBA has a similar thing with their app where you can listen to the radio guys. Chuck Swirsky comes to mind there. He's so good. Um, there, there are so many guys who do, who do such wonderful work. And uh, I think if you, if you want to listen to them, they're out there. Go get them. And uh, the, the only thing I would say is that I think the biggest priority, even beyond who you listen to, is how you listen. You know, don't don't take anybody. Don't listen to Bob Uecker and try to be Bob Uecker on the air. You know, you haven't been in baseball for 65 years. It's not going to be funny. Um, you can't do his stories. But what you can do is maybe listen to a certain how he frames the pitch, the way he tells you when the pitcher is in the windup and the timing and the rhythm of his broadcast and what's desirable about that and try to use some of that stuff. I would say the almost the the inhuman elements of the broadcast, if that makes sense, the parts that aren't a part of somebody's personality those are the things that you can take and use in your own broadcast without sounding inauthentic. Once again, we are visiting with Nate Gatter. He is a junior at the University of Missouri. He won the Jim Nance Award for the top collegiate sportscaster in all of the land. And Nate, I just want to thank you very much for taking a little bit of time to come on the Say the Damn Score podcast. 
Absolutely. I'll, anytime. I'm really, really honored to have been on here. And hopefully I said one or two things that were worthwhile. If anybody wanted to reach out to you, how would they do so? Uh, well, on Twitter, I'm at Nate Gatter. My website is nategatter.com. Uh, there's a contact page there. My email address is on there, all my clips and everything. So feel free to, to check it out, click around. And if you feel compelled to say hello or send me a disparaging note about how much you hate my work, go for it. I, I welcome it all. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to take a minute if you're listening on iTunes and give us a review and a rating. It really helps the podcast. Also, make sure to subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or you can follow me on Twitter at Radio underscore Logan, or follow the podcast on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Say the Damn Score. Thanks for tuning in, and next time you're on the air, make sure to Say the Damn Score just a little bit more.